Hi, I'm Bob Bushansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, A Love Story. Tonight at midnight ends the current year and at 12.01, we start a new year. That great. And we are all hopeful that the new year will be better. But it may not start that way. With the Omicron variant waging war against the world and with Joe Manchin lying through his teeth, the outlook to start is not so good. Today being the fifth Friday, we have with us Phil Worf, Mendocino College Professor of Political Science to go over a bunch of things. And we're gonna do things a little differently today. We will do our regular hour and end the show, and then we will add a bonus time to finish some of the topics that we had set out to discuss. That bonus time will be posted to kzyx.org, the website, a couple of hours after the end of the regular show. I'll mention it again later on. So let me welcome Phil Worf to Politics, A Love Story. Hi, Phil. Hi, good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. So we had uh, a lot of topics that we were going to go over. A couple of them we decided that we probably would put as a much lower priority. But we have something that we should probably discuss up front, and that's... uh, A lot of people were hopeful that the Build Back Better bill was going to uh, do a lot of things, including uh, help the climate uh, and also help families. And now Joe Manchin has reneged on his promise. And in fact, what's interesting is that uh, the the uh, the the progressive crew, uh, uh, that's uh, AOC and uh, Ileana Presley, they were worried that the moderate Democrats couldn't be trusted to put this bill up. And that's why they wanted that to go first and then the infrastructure bill to go after. Well, uh, they've been proved right because Joe Manchin uh, lied to all of us. Uh, So would you like to get into that a little bit? Well, sure. I mean, you know, there, there was the, uh, assertion a few, um, you know, a few weeks ago that they had come to some tentative agreement, meaning uh, Manchin and the Democratic leadership in the Senate, uh, and you know what had to do with um, some Obamacare subsidies and childcare and stuff like that. But now he's saying, well, wait a minute, this is going to be too expensive. The Congressional Budget Office um, said it's going to be a lot more expensive than you guys say it is. Um, and he's uh, he went on Fox News, right? And he said, I just can't, uh, I can't go back and explain this to my. Uh, to my constituents in my home state, and uh, you know, which which surprises me. Um, but I think the big the big issue for Mansion is that these are these um, uh, you know emissions taxes and uh, that kind of thing, which which will hit people uh, you know big business in West Virginia more significantly maybe than other places. So that's probably got a lot to do with his uh, opposition. Maybe he wants to extract something out of it. But I think you're right. I mean, he said I, I you know there was a some agreement on these basic things. And now he said, well, I can't do that. And, um, you know, that's, um, that's, uh, that calls into question whether he's can be trusted. And I think you're right. The progressives in the, in the house had an idea that this might happen and they wanted to link these two together and that did, they were convinced not to. And I think, um, you know, you're right. They, they turned out to be correct in their, um, their fear. Another interesting thing is that he made this announcement on Fox yeah, I mean, it's uh, surprising to me, I, you know, um, that he would go on Fox News and then make this, um, you know, to 
and say he's not going to support this bill. He can't explain it to his, his uh, home state. And, you know, this, this seems to me almost like if you're a Democrat in the Senate, that this is kind of, you know, traitorous that you would do that and you would announce it on Fox News also. But I think this has um, everything to do with, you know, the fact that he's from West Virginia. It's a very conservative state. And he, I guess he wants to make, keep his place in the Senate. I'm not sure how this is helping him, to be frank, because um, people generally like you to deliver things that are quite popular, like the uh, paid family leave and the universal or the, the um, you know, the child care tax credit, stuff like that. Um, and uh, so it seems like that would be a good, a good move. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a shame that he's taken this approach. And, um, you know, it's really frustrating to Democrats in the Senate, particularly, obviously. And um, are the Democrats going to be able to deliver on what they said they were going to be able to deliver? And if Manchin is the one person that puts the brakes on that, you know, uh, this is going to hurt the Democrats, um, broadly speaking, and Manchin's not up for re-election in 2022. So it's, um, you know, seems odd that he would be this, um, you know, um, this, this firm on it, you know. I don't think he's concerned about re-election because I think he's going to become a Republican before that and run as a Republican in West Virginia. He'll get elected without any trouble whatsoever. Uh, plus, he's been meeting with... Um, uh, with, uh, let's see, the, the senator from Kentucky, Mitch McConnell, uh, meeting with him one-on-one. And before he went into the Fox interview, he refused a call from President Biden. Uh, snubbing the president of the United States, uh, that's a, a pretty big deal. Yeah, I mean, the, he apparently released this, uh, did this press release 30 minutes or something before he went on the air and um, on Fox News and then the president, somebody from the White House called, as you said, and he didn't talk to them. So it's and then, of course, you know, um, and so it sets back the entire Democratic agenda until January. Um, We don't um, you know, who knows how this is going to the building back better bill is going to turn out. We do have this. you know, the Senate's now saying, okay, we're going to turn our attention to this voting rights stuff. It's unclear what, what Manchin's, um, how he's going to come down on this too. Is he going to use the filibuster as an excuse not to do it? Um, it seems, you know, seems unlikely, um, or it, it seems um, harmful to his party uh, to do this, but maybe, maybe he wants to become a Republican. It wouldn't surprise me because um, if you look at what he's doing right now is he is sort of towing the Republican line on a lot of this and, you know, he's playing to his constituents back home. Maybe you're right. Maybe he's going to you know, switch. I, um, I haven't seen anything about that. Well, a bellwether for me will be if he refuses to cut out an exemption for a voting rights bill, uh, that would show that he's really siding with the Republicans, because if the Democrats don't get a voting rights bill enacted, uh, they're going to have a tough row road to hoe or row to hoe over the next 10 years until the next uh, census. And if they can't claw back some of these strict laws in the, in the various red states, uh, Democrats have no chance for a good future. So if he's refusing to go along, I would say he's going to uh, declare himself a Republican before he runs for reelection. Well, maybe. I mean, he there has been meetings between Manchin and the Senate leadership uh, with with uh, consultants that uh, you know parliamentarian consultants that would 
uh, have some ideas about whether you can carve out this exception to the filibuster. Uh, we, we know you can do it on the debt limit, right? Um, is, is, is it possible? Is Manchin interested in doing that? Um, he has met with these people. I think he does want some of this, um, but you know, how, how far does he have to stick his neck out? Um, that's, that's a question, and I think that's really the most important thing for him. But I mean, automatic voter registration and um, protection of uh, mail-in balloting and um, something that goes after this, um, uh, these, uh, the constraining of actual voting officials and ways that they can, you know, so the state legislature can simply take over the process at the end. I'm not sure how the, the federal government goes after that, but, um, you know, same day registration, all kinds of stuff that the federal government can do um, that it has control over in congressional elections. And um, if Manchin, I mean, surely Manchin understands that this is going to be really negative for the Democrats. Um, and it's uh, so I think it he he has some interest in it, what specifics uh, he's um, in favor of and whether he's willing to take any real risks or um, make any sacrifices to change the uh, rules on this on the filibuster. That all remains to be seen. I, I'm uh, I'm skeptical. And another fly in the ointment is that uh, the senator from Arizona, Kirsten Cinema, has said against any exceptions to the filibuster. So even if Joe Manchin is convinced, will they be able to convince Cinema? And I don't think that she's going to be able to as a Democrat in Arizona. You know, I'm not sure she'll go as a Republican. I don't think she'll get reelected under any circumstances, but that's just my guess. Well, I mean, um, you know, it, it certainly happened before um, when people see the political wind shifting and they, you know, switch parties. Um, and it's very possible. I think Manchin is a better fit with the Republicans in a lot of ways and it would make it would be rational for him to do that. Would he be able to get reelected? I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe he maybe he will do that. I think cinema uh, seems to be more of a wild card in many ways because Manchin is very clear about what he's interested in doing he's willing to accept and not, uh, but we, it's kind of, it's not clear uh, exactly what cinema's view is on all this and how she's would, would react. So we don't know enough to really say at this point, or at least I don't. So let's uh, move on to uh, another important topic and that's the January 6th committee. Uh, they will soon ID members of Congress who had something to do with the insurrection on January 6th. And they seem to be moving right along. I suppose one of the things that uh, a lot of people complain about is the slow movement of uh, justice and the legal system. There are so many hurdles to overcome. And unless you have all your, uh, your uh, evidence lined up and ready to go and be able to prove in a court of law not just the things that we think we know, but what a jury will believe. Uh, it's a very high bar uh, in this particular case, a former president who might be uh, indicted for any of a number of things, uh, uh, the people associated with him. Uh, the January 6th committee seems to be doing an excellent job, but we really don't have any idea. What do you think? Well, we don't know exactly, uh, obviously, how it's going to pan out, but I, I do think that uh, one thing that they've 
um, determined or one thing that we're going to hear about, I believe, very soon is this sort of this um, cabal, right, of, um, of Republicans in Congress, some of which were recently elected, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, but also this guy Paul Gosar in Arizona and a number of others. And, you know, he's even uh, floating this idea before the insurrection that, hey, Trump's going to give you a blanket immunity so we can just do whatever we want. Um, and this is, um, are, are they, what exactly are, do we know about what, what happened there? What's the Senate or what's the, uh, the House going to release? But the, you're right, Bob, the big, the big problem, or the committee, the big problem here is that um, justice works slowly. And if you run into, um, you know, judges that are appointed by Republicans who are opposed to this uh, investigation, they can drag it out, they can drag their feet, they can ask for more evidence, they, and then, then if, you know, whatever happens, you can appeal to another court. So unless there's really a fast tracking of this, and it really has to be done before, you know, November, or earlier than that of 2022. And that's going to be uh, one of the biggest challenges. And it's also Congress does not have a lot of subpoena power unless the Justice Department is going to really uh, push those and that those also have some risk for the Justice Department too. So you would you would think that given what we know about it, it would be pretty easy to go after some of these um, you know people that were planning the insurrection. Dozens of meetings apparently, um, but it's going to be difficult and it's going to take a while. And can it happen before you know the time this year that it needs to happen? Uh, I don't I don't know. Um, they will release something. Will they have a smoking gun? I don't know. And what's also interesting is that Merrick Garland, I mean, he was the guy that should have been at the Supreme Court instead of Neil Gorsuch. Uh, but what it looks like, because he did very well on the appellate court, he works better in a group than as the in-charge person of a, of a big department like the Department of Justice at the U.S. government level. Uh, and he's facing tough choices. So when, when the House puts forth uh, a, uh, a charge of obstructing Congress or failure to uh, 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 conform to a subpoena, uh, he's taking his time. Maybe that's, again, the wheels of justice moving very slowly. But I think he's, he ha- has already said he doesn't want to spend much time past and try to not be partisan but this isn't being partisan going after the evildoers as bush used to say and that's what i also had uh, issues with obama about there were people in the bush administration who should have gone to jail but they weren't even investigated and because he did he wanted to look forward as well he didn't want to go back i think that's wrong because now we're in this position trump felt that well they didn't uh, they didn't prosecute anybody who did bad things in the past why are they going to prosecute now so uh, and i think that's um, you're my seeing the personal same feeling yeah i mean i think you're seeing the same thing from the white house now um, biden is saying you know let's let the committee do their job um, the white house press secretary is um, saying basically the same thing we're going to keep focused on you know our agenda and this is a mistake i mean you these people were engaged in an insurrection seeking to overturn a presidential election 
after they should be gone after very hard. Um, there should, the, the law should be deployed against them in a, in a maximum way, um, you know, so that they get the message that this is not permissible. And I don't think they've gotten that message. I think Fox News is, um, you know, changing their tune. <laughs> so we, we saw what they were saying on the day of the insurrection. Um, and I think it's a mistake. I think Bush needs, um, I think, Gore, uh, not Bush or Gore. I think that uh, Biden needs to go after them. And I think he needs to make this a, a big issue. And, you know, because the longer he waits and the longer this is not top priority in terms of the, you know, the, the uh, public persona of the Biden administration, the longer Fox News and um, Republicans in Congress and others are going to be able to make the case that this eh, it wasn't a big deal. And maybe even Venezuela was involved. Bob, did you know that? <laughs> yeah, with uh, the, the Dominion voting system. Uh, yeah, That's it, right. They helped yeah. Hugo Chavez, and so they helped Biden, according to Fox News and the pillow guy. Yeah, the pillow guy. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think there's a distinction here. Um, uh, Trump tried to use William Barr as his personal attack dog. And that, of course, is wrong. So if uh, Biden is backing off and allowing uh, Merrick Garland and his Justice Department to follow through on this, I don't think that's a bad thing. But if he doesn't move along, I think that's wrong. And to uh, forget about the past, uh, especially when there's now lots of talk around about a potential second insurrection in 2024. I think if Trump... I mean, if Trump does run in 2024 and it uh, turns out the same way, uh, although polling right now suggests he might be in pretty good shape against Biden in a rematch, um, you know, this is, um, you know, this is a, a message that uh, is, is very, is, these are actions that are very dangerous for the future of American democracy. And if you talk to people who uh, sort of observe of democracies ab- abroad and try to, um, you know, identify potential threats to democracy and ways to develop or to ways to address those, the United States is meeting a number of those, uh, um, you know, criteria right now, and, it, and, it, and it's very dangerous. And I think the president needs to express, you know, some leadership on this. I also think that, um, you know, Mayor Garland, um, he probably has a beef with the Republicans a little bit because of the way they, they, uh, they messed him up. Uh, and how good he is at managing the Justice Department, I don't know. But, um, uh, you know, I think that uh, he will try to expedite these as much as possible if there if there's a good justification. And I think there is. And I'd be surprised if he you know, spends too much time on uh, Meadows, um, you know, waiting to see or evaluating the case. But um, you might be right. I, I don't I, but I don't think he's dragging his feet on it. I think he's going to pursue these things pretty, pretty, um, pretty good. He's got a, got a grand jury convened and he's going to bring this stuff to them. Well, if he does bring an indictment against Meadows, I'll feel a little bit more comfortable Uh, But if he doesn't, then uh, I think we're in big trouble. Uh, So let me just reintroduce you. You're listening to Politics, a Love Story. Our guest today is political science professor Phil Worf, and we're talking about current things that are going on rather than a book that I've read and I'm interviewing the author. And that book was uh, researched for six years before it was actually written. So here we're talking about what's going on here and now. So uh, another thing that you know a little bit about, and I just put this down as a topic, is that young people are uh, trending away from the Republicans and 
towards Democrats, but you know a lot more about that because you do a yearly survey amongst your students. Well, I mean, I, I talk to my students a lot about this and, um, you know, a lot of, you know, I teach a lot of introductory American government. So my students are sort of learning a lot about the system and many of them don't know a lot about it. And it's very easy for young people to avoid political stuff altogether. You know, Bob, when you're growing up, was there like one TV channel or something? Uh, when I was growing up, there were three. Right. And I think that's the same for you. Yes. And so and so they can they can avoid it as much as possible. So they really do learn a lot that they're completely not exposed to. But one of the things that really happened in 20, 2020 was that young people were mobilized really well, uh, especially in swing states, especially minority um, uh, voters, uh, young voters, um, much bigger. Uh, win for Biden among those voters than for Hillary Clinton, um, much bigger turnout than in 20, um, 2016. And, you know, so young voters are really mobilized. I also think that if you look at um, public attitudes, but also um, just public opinion about issues, about candidates, young people are much more liberal than, you know, say in the past, you know, in, in, in recent past. And uh, people my age, um, you know, they were came of age, you know, during the Reagan era, and they're more conservative, generally speaking. Um, but I think this group is, is much less, uh, they're much more liberal. And what that's going to mean down the line, I don't know. Um, uh, well, I do know it's going to make uh, things shift um, to the left. Is that going to be greater than the advantage Republicans have, the systemic advantage Republicans have, and the ability that they, are, uh, that they have to uh, limit the competitive nature of congressional districts is going to benefit them greatly in a way that's much more, uh, much bigger than their actual uh, electoral power uh, because of the way the system is structured. Yeah, what you pointed out to me when we had a, a previous discussion um, off air uh, was that in the long run, this will be good. But is it going to make a difference now, uh, this year for, or next year, 2022, Will that make a difference, uh, whether these young people could be mobilized? Um, Biden doesn't speak as well as Obama did. He can't seem to get people excited. Plus, we have the added problem of uh, the coronavirus. I mean, this has put everybody off their game, no matter what their game is. Uh, everybody's uncomfortable. They're tired of being kept uh, inside or wearing masks rebelling against getting a COVID vaccine. Uh, so what, will, what difference this will make immediately, whether we'll even have a future, we won't know until we see the next election. Well, um, right. I mean, I think the possibility that the next election could turn out, um, could, could result to, to real conflict um, is, is fairly, the risk is fairly substantial. You know, the impact of young people um, going forward, is we going to see a big impact immediately? Well, it's not in 2020, no question. Um, you know, usually those midterm congressional elections in 2022, um, there's going to be very low turnout generally, but also really, really low turnout among young people typically. Um, 2024 will be, I think there'll be more engagement. And so we'll have to look for the next presidential election to see how, how big that impact is. But if you look at uh, demographic trends, you know, look at attitudinal trends and things like that, um, the uh, movement away from the Republicans is fairly significant. Now, that doesn't mean it's all moving to the Democratic Party. There's, um, you know, the number of uh, young people who are unaffiliated or independent, partly as a result of not having a lot of knowledge, but also because they just don't feel the two parties speak to them. And I think that's true for a whole lot of people uh, in the country. 
and you know that won't change we're, we're it's a two-party system uh but um you know uh the, the young people are not satisfied with the system and would like to see change um and so typically that means um democrats right now maybe it means republicans down the line but the demographic demographic nature of this group seems it seems like it's going to be a, a democratic group um now we know that people do some people, um, usually they're consistent in their ideology, their political, uh, their voting behavior, but some people do get cons- more conservative as they get older, and we'll see what, how much that shaves off of this pretty liberal group. Um, but I would say, you know, people, there's this idea that there's this big shift among people to become more conservative as they get older, and that's not true. People tend to stick with the party they started voting for, um, but there will be some, be some decline. Um, but I, I think, not in 2022, but maybe longer term down the line, it'll uh, create a big shift uh, in, in um, you know, political outcomes. Well, there's also, uh, when we're talking about demographics, uh, the fact that uh, Democrats for years have taken for granted Latinos. And Latinos are changing their voting habits from always Democrats to sometimes Republicans. And that's going to cause a big problem for Democrats if they don't do something about that soon. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are some, um, you know, Latino voters or Hispanic voters that have been Republican for a long time. Let's say Cubans in Florida, for example, uh, they're changing a little bit. But um, yeah, and if you look at a place like Texas, particularly, you do have a fairly significant uh, Latino population that is Republican. And, you know, if you if you're unsatisfied with the way things are going in California, you really only have one alternative um, to the Democrats. And so, you know, you're right these this group for the Democrats can't be taken for granted anymore. And there really has to be, um, you know, a way to keep those those people in the in the coalition. Um, and right now, um, you know, that that vote is not a big enough swing vote in many states to have a huge impact. But in places like California or Florida or Texas, these are big states and they're big Latino populations. And, um, you know, we'll probably talk about Texas, but all the growth in Texas is basically among minority voters in the last decade. And that's true in California, too, and uh, for the most part. And this is a, a big um, you know, a big challenge and a big trend um, that the Republicans are going to face and the Democrats, too, if they don't sort of make sure that they keep their coalition together. And the problem in Texas is that the almost four million uh, new residents of the state that allowed them to get two new seats, not one of those seats was uh, fashioned around as a Latino district. I think that uh, Eric Holder is going to go after that with his voting, uh, voting rights organization, because that's a gerrymander that actually works uh, as, a, as a racial snub, uh, just like they were doing in North Carolina. They got shot down for their uh, new map. And I think that they may make some inroads, even with um, a Republican Supreme Court. Well, I don't know, uh, Bob, and the reason is because, you know, a few years ago, the um, Voting Rights Act, um, where there was a case case brought against the um, the sort of uh, the change in Republican uh, orientation about how to uh, redistrict, and those cases made it to the Supreme Court, and, and, you know, we've talked about before, they basically um, eviscerated Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act, which identifies and defines how you you determine states that are engaging in racial gerrymander, and they basically said, uh, hey, this is 40-year-old data, you know, um, we don't, 
this is not a thing for the courts to do. And so they no longer have to do pre-clearance with the Justice Department, these sort of, you know, historically um, uh, anti-minority states, mostly Southern states, uh, they no longer have to do that. And this means that um, it's going to be really hard. And I don't know how, you know, you you might know more than I do about uh, Eric Holder's group. I don't know what um, they're going to be able to do. I mean, the court says just, you know, uh, if you break up a, a, a minority community into multiple districts, you know, you have to prove to us, the courts say, that um, that that your minority group is not a swing vote in the district, but the majority vote in the district. And that that's, um, you know, easy to to break apart uh, if you're redistricting. And there are a number of other sort of characteristics like that that make it hard for these uh, in, for for challenges to um, redistricting now. Um, and so maybe they have a better strategy or they, maybe they're linking, uh, uh, hanging their cases on something else. But I think it's a pretty tough road to hoe unless we can get, you know, unless there's change at the Supreme Court level. And that's very unlikely to happen. One of the things that uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts said when they shot down that section four was that they don't want to get involved into political issues. That's for the voters and uh, Congress to take care of. But when there was racism involved, they would take a look at the case. So that's what um, thinking could happen, whether it does or not, I don't know for sure. But the overall aspect of gerrymandering, that's what the voting rights bills in Congress are hoping to change so that there isn't extreme partisan gerrymandering, which really skews things. And if you talk about one person, one vote, uh, it doesn't work if you're going to skew the things, like in Wisconsin. So there's about a 48, 48% of the population Republican and Democrat. And yet they've set up their districts so that the Republicans get two-thirds of the districts. Well, that's a political thing, yes. There isn't a, a, a lot of minority population in Wisconsin. So how do you change that? That's, that's going to be a, those states that have low minorities and many districts and close to the a tie with the Republicans and Democrats. This is going to be a problem going forward. It is. And uh, I don't remember the specific election, but it may have been 2016, um, 2014, 2018. I'm not sure, but I think it's 16 or 14 in Wisconsin, uh, where the Democrats got something like 60 percent of all statewide, and yet they were not able to take the state legislature. In fact, didn't even get close to taking the state legislature. And this is a clear, it was only a result of gerrymandering. That's it. And so, you know, this is deleterious to democracy, but is it illegal? Is a partisan gerrymander illegal? Well, you know, it's really not. Um, it's, it's politics. Uh, so how do you get past this? Well, maybe you go to the Citizens Redistricting Commissions and this sort of thing, which takes it out of the legislation's, legislators' hands. Uh, what we're seeing, though, is that in mostly Democratic states is where this is happening. And so you have the Republicans still playing, you know, hardball and gerrymandering and Democrats seeking sort of, you know, good government solutions. And this is putting them behind the eight ball a little bit. But now let's let's let's, uh, you know, I want to make clear, though, that you have Maryland, which is also doing this kind of, um, you know, Democratic state, which is doing this kind of redistricting and, and um, uh, a couple others. And so. You know, the Republicans are only it's not only the Republicans playing this game, but they tend to be much more aggressive about it, uh, particularly in places like Texas, where you have a growth in minority voters. They're a threat to Republican power. And so you have to, you know, 
what it's called packing and cracking, right? You got to pack voters into one district or you got to crack them up into several districts and dilute their, their voting power. And that's exactly how it's happening. Uh, just real quickly, I mean, there's there there's one district in Texas that's actually competitive after this gerrymander, one congressional district. And then there's two, one leans to the Republicans, one leans to the Democrats, and the rest of them are completely not competitive whatsoever. So you got 35 out of 38 districts where there's really got, you know, for the next decade, it's almost impossible for the other party to take those seats. And so the Republicans, if they can win in those um, zero, zero years, like they did in 2010 and 2020, um, they're going to be able to uh, maintain that power base for 10 years. And when you combine that to all the judges that they're going to be able to appoint, um, you know, that cements their power for a long, long time. You know, is that politics, Bob, or is there something wrong with that? Uh the uh, in Maryland, uh, the Democrats backed off. They were going to eliminate the one Republican district, and they backed off and allowed that to continue. So they saw the error of their ways. If they try to act like Republicans, uh, they were going to be blamed, or there would be a false equ- equivalency brought up to say, "Well, they both do it." Except right. if you get a hundred extra Republican. House members because of redistricting and gerrymandering, and the Democrats get one or two. That uh, that's a false equivalent. Well, that's true, and you know one of the you know the importance of gerrymandering and the political power that comes from being able to draw districts. If you look at um, and how many seats the Democratic states won, and how many or in the terms of the shift, how many more um, seats Democratic states have, and how many more the Republican states got. If you just look at if the only difference is how those seats will um, be allocated in Congress based on the result, Republicans are going to win Congress. I mean, there's no question about it. So unless there's a big year for Democrats, which is unlikely in a midterm election year with the president's party, you know, this is going to be could be a very big win for Republicans. But they don't even really need a big win. They, they've got these seats almost locked in. Um, yeah. Five seats is all they need to take yeah. over the House. That's right. And we, you know, every, all the commentators believe that Democrats were going to do much better in the House in 2020. And now they're, you know, they're really facing a, a big problem and you throw gerrymandering in and yeah, it's going to be almost impossible. And so Biden might be looking at a Republican Senate and House in the second half of this term, and he'll be able to get less done than um, Joe Manchin's allowing him to do now. Well, let's talk about the Senate for a moment. Uh, there's no biting up of, into districts. It's a statewide vote. Uh, so if the young people start to get involved this year, uh, and in Texas, if all those people who actually are Democrats or leaning uh, Democrat, it's possible uh, that Ted Cruz will not be reelected. And then we look at Wisconsin, it's Ron Johnson. He's such an idiot. I can't imagine he's going to get reelected. We look at uh, North Carolina, Burr is retiring. So it's very possible that we could get uh, a Democrat there as well. Uh, There are a number of opportunities. It depends upon uh, what the stories are and what gets accomplished this year or doesn't uh, and what the economy is doing right now. Joe Biden's numbers are moving up a little bit from his low. Uh, If the bad stuff all happens in the beginning of the year and then later on it starts to all improve, 
The Omicron is sort of under control. There is no further variant that's going to be uh, as harmful. And the economy improves so that people recognize it. Right now, the economy is improving, but people don't recognize it. And they don't give uh, Biden and his administration enough credit for it. So everything's going to turn on a dime, Phil. It's, we can't sit here and predict what will happen because there are too many things that could occur in between. Yeah, there are a lot of variables and, you know, people, um, a year is a long time in politics, right? And so good polling data for Republicans or Democrats right now that could completely change um, as, as events uh, come along. But I think that, you know, I think, um, you know, looking at Biden's poll numbers, he's really not... <laughs> Well, even though he's doing better than he was a month or uh, six weeks ago or something. But, you know, I think the Afghanistan withdrawal um, hurt him because it looked kind of chaotic. And, um, you know, I think that hurt him quite a bit. And I think you're right. You know, there's the economy is it's getting better, but there's also the inflation issue. And people are focused on inflation um, to some degree. And the idea that uh, it would be transitory, as the, the Federal Reserve um, chairman said, that sort of give, gave a a slight a, a misimpression of how it's going to work, but you know, oil prices are coming down. You know, uh, I don't know how inflation is going to work in the long term, but that's a big problem for Biden. Um, if that can sort of ramp down, um, and you get, um, you know, employment numbers are getting better. So, I mean, it, it's looking up potentially uh, for Biden, but um, right. I mean, if the election were today, the Democrats would be in pretty big trouble. <laughs> Yeah, but another uh, bright spot for Democrats is the rise of labor unions again. Uh, this is something that uh, you highlighted that uh, you wanted to talk about. This is uh, pretty interesting what's going on around the country. Yeah, I mean, I think you see a number of um, strikes right now. Um, <clears throat> Kellogg's is the one that's getting the, the biggest attention, uh, those four big plants. And, uh, you know, and then they rejected the first offer or the first uh, agreement and now they're um, going to be voting on a second agreement. But you know, right now is a particularly good time, right? Because you had that period where employment and still now, where there was a, a shortage of of um, of employees, and there was all you know this this um, commitment and the work and the effort that those people have put in uh, really need to be you know compensated, particularly during this dangerous period and many extra hours. And so they took the opportunity. Uh, that presented itself to to try to um, you know do more uh, for for themselves, and I think um, you know Bob the the big thing that um, has been a problem for workers, and you see the decline in, in income and benefits and all this stuff over time, is there's just a lack of collective action, and when you have workers to band together and are able to um, you know act collectively that gives workers a lot much more power relative to their employer. And you can see that in some of these, um, these things. Now you look at union, um, uh, union jobs, they're much better paid than non-union jobs. And there's much more power for employees, particularly at a place like Kellogg's who can't move all their, well, I guess they could move their stuff overseas, but it's on, you know, that unlikely. Right. And so that gives, that gives workers more power. I think if there were more uh, collective bargaining, um, workers would have even greater power. But it's a different economy than it was, you know, when unions were dominant in the 1950s and 60s. And it can be a challenge, uh, obviously, to organize. 
I mean, uh, particularly if you're trying to organize in the South, there's, um, you know, wasn't there the BMW plan, I think it was, or one of the German car plants, um, maybe Volkswagen in Alabama, I think it was. And even the company itself, the German company yeah. said, we think have an employee union is a really great idea. And they still voted it down. So it's a union, unionism is a, you know, not very popular in the South, let's say, for example. But if you look at the benefits that unions can extract from their employers and the difference in terms of you know, health insurance and uh, retirement benefits and that is big. But one of the things that unions have done is they've gone to this sort of legacy employee and this transitional type employee where the second group of employees makes much less money. The benefits are much lower. I think it's one of the things that the Kellogg's people, uh, the workers want to do is to um, give those people a chance to, to you know, go into that uh, better tier status. And so there's a lot of issues like that, that, um, you know, workers see an opportunity to challenge uh, at this particular time. And so we see it in all kinds of, from Hollywood to, you know, tracker making, it's all, um, it's all happening right now. So and there's coffee opportunity. Making, coffee making as well. Yes, that's right. One Starbucks store uh, voted for a union, but the, uh, I think the atmosphere is right for labor to rise up because they put their employees in jeopardy uh, with the uh, uh, the COVID uh, crisis. Whether they're mari- wearing masks, whether their customers are wearing masks, they're still in jeopardy. They're working long hours because uh, people uh, aren't going to the jobs. Uh, everyone is seeing a shortage. I was over in Ukiah a couple of weeks ago. And In-N-Out Burger is offering $20 an hour to start, even though as of January 15th, the state minimum wage is only 15, uh, because they're having trouble. And if you look, well, here in Fort Bragg, you look at almost uh, every other store has a sign saying help wanted. So this is a perfect opportunity uh, for unions to show a little bit of strength because they're not sh- the companies are not sharing the wealth. The upper executives, the chief executives are getting huge amounts of money and stock options. They could share some of that with their employees who are the ones on the front lines, but they're not. I think that's foolish. Well, I mean, if you think about it long term, that's certainly one perspective, but that's that's a lot of what drives this, um, you know, union activism. As you look at, for example, the you know chief executive of Kellogg's making twelve million bucks a year, and that's peanuts compared to what most um, CEOs are making for these big companies. And it's hard to um, hard to justify that when you look at the fact that employees' salaries and benefits are going down, and these you know, massive, as you said, stock options and things like that, which actually they're paying lower tax rates on than their employees are income, which is, it's, it's so, it's mind boggling um, how the laws are created in such a way to benefit a certain, you know, those, uh, those kind of big income, um, uh, you know, big, well-salaried employees. And, you know, the, the government needs to uh, do more about that. And I think that this is a problem with, um, you know, Manchin and Cinema is that part of uh, the Build Back Better bill is to, you know, put in some corporate taxes and some other revenue raisers to pay for the bill. And he doesn't want to, uh, Manchin that is, doesn't want to do any of that. And so how are you, and then he complains about the cost of the bill. Well, you can't. Right legislation unless you can pay for it. And if you don't want to pay for it, you can't do it. Republicans are very good at that, um, doing things that they can't pay for and then blaming it on the Democrats. For example, 
you know, the fact that the Trump tax cuts for lower income people, for people at the lower scale are going to disappear before the next presidential election. But that's not happening to people at the at the top of the income scale. And so this is it's really cynical. And, uh, you know, something's got to change, Bob, don't you think? I mean, it's very cynical. I agree. And uh, that's what uh, is starting to happen when it gets to be a, uh, a real snowball going into a huge uh, ball uh, going downhill, then maybe we could breathe a little easier. So one of the things I wanted to get to was uh, that many entities are closing in on Trump. There's the New York Attorney General, there's Georgia with uh, 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 trying to intimidate the Secretary of State, the Manhattan DA, the January 6th committee, and a judge has pointed out that obstruction of Congress is what many insurrectionists could be convicted of, and that includes Trump, and that is up to 20 years in prison for interfering with a governmental operation. So I think that you stories of insiders telling how apocalyptic that Trump is getting because he feels the pressure. Everybody's coming at him, and that's why he's now suing the attorney general of New York to stop her investigation into his corporation. So Trump is feeling the heat. He's feeling the heat for sure. And, um, the, you know, I've I've read in the last couple of days um, a couple of reports that there will be a couple of charges uh, racketeering that will uh, come down against Trump in New York uh, very soon. Uh, and I, I certainly believe that. Um, but, yeah, he's coming under attack from a bunch of angles and um, he's he's going to, uh, you know, it's going to be hard to, to beat back all of them. Um, how successful he's going to be or how much under the gun he's going to be is 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 a little bit unclear. Uh, so a couple of things. One in, in New York, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a little skeptical about because, you know, real estate developers lie all the time, you know, and, and people will lie about um, what their what their assets are and so forth. But um, if you I don't know if you read any of this, but uh, the the um, the company that is that presents these um, reports to potential uh, funders, uh, says uh, multiple times within the report, we've not reviewed this information, we've not audited it. I mean, not just once, like several times. And so it's clear um, to Deutsche Bank or whoever it is that that he's uh, potentially making um, grandiose statements about his income. And But how common is this? I don't know. And, you know, is that going to be uh, a big problem for Trump? Um, you don't un- think so? Un- What's that? You don't think so? I mean, I don't know. I think that um, if you get a grand jury, well, you have the grand jury that might come down with the indictments, but, you know, uh, real estate developers lie all the time. People that run businesses, um, you know, fudge their information all the time. And how, how common is this and uh, how different is Trump from others? Um, is, is, is he a liar? Yes. Um, is he um, probably misrepresenting his um, financial condition for a long, long time? Yes. Um, how how actively or how how tough they're going to be able to go after him. Um, Whether he's been doing it or not, it's against the law. It's fraud. If you show yes. the value of your property to get a loan as being way higher than it actually is, and then that same property, you tell the tax people that it's worth hardly anything. One of them was $337 million 
when he was getting a loan from Deutsche Bank. That's what he represented this one piece of property for. And to, uh, to pay taxes, he said it's only worth 16,700,000. That's 5% of the actual value that he told the bank. I mean, there's fraud there in two ways. Well, I mean, you're right. That's a good point. Um, I think it may come down to the the scope or the extent of the uh, misrepresentation, um, and and it's it's very it's very significant, as you say. Um, <clears throat> but there's no claim by by this. Uh, well, I, we'll have to see how how it. Uh, we'll have <laughs> if there's any uh, any charges brought against him. And then um, I think the the scale of it is is a big deal, and and you you might have your your finger out a little bit better. Um, but I think in terms of the um, in terms of the insurrection, in terms of his potential um, the potential problem there with the obstruction of Congress, uh, one of the there's already been a court ruling here that um, you know has been a challenge to whether this in fact is an obstruction of Congress or this is a an official proceeding of Congress, and it is. And the courts have said, look, you have a presiding officer, you have a process, you have an outcome, you know, this is a, this is an official proceeding. And I think that is a, a way that many of these people are going to be, uh, they're going to go after a number of these people, uh, maybe including Trump and some people like um, maybe, maybe Mark Meadows, uh, maybe those, uh, you know, those six members of Congress um, and maybe others. Uh, and so that's why I think that, and, and what you're getting at, it's really essential that some of this information come out and just get pushed forward fairly quickly. And, that's that's where there could be a big problem you know but but the but given the given what's happening here and this the threat of the the january 6th behavior to american democracy you know there needs to be really aggressive action and i hope biden will join in more of it and i hope the courts will be able to move these um you know move these questions quickly and hopefully that can be resolved in the next six nine months Uh, it seems like a challenge but he's got so many entities that are investigating and convening uh, grand juries uh, that he's bound to get caught up in the web. And if they try to do a RICO uh, case against him, I think there might be good cause for that as well. That's a, a continuing criminal organization. He's done so many things that are against the law. Uh, I don't know. I'm not an attorney, so I can't say for sure. But Certainly, people have uh, been convicted of lower level stuff, uh, and this is high level stuff. In addition, here's what's now coming out from the January 6th committee, that this, all of these cabals and, uh, and conspiracies didn't start on the day after the election when he was shown to have lost. They started several months earlier. They were developing ways to get around in case he lost. So they weren't expecting uh, a landslide for Trump. They were expecting a loss for Trump, all of his people. And they were coming up with all these different theories. All these people came out of the woodwork, developing 52-page reports as to what could be done, how they can get Pence involved. He's He's a linchpin in all this, because if he had gone along with what was wanted, it's not that they would have necessarily won, but it certainly would have th- thrown things into disarray and Trump might have been able to uh, do a posse comitatus and bring out the military. Although the generals are saying they wouldn't have been involved with that. So 
we avoided a mess, but we could still have one going into the future if things aren't cleared up now. Right. Well, I think it's, um, you know, uh, Pence, I'm not really a big fan of Mike Pence, but I think um, he really did show um, good judgment. I thought he showed um, patriotism. I thought he showed that uh, Trump's not more important than the country. And that was really, uh, without that, it could have been, um, it could have gone haywire. Um, the other thing, too, is I think if you look at this guy in um, Secretary of State in Georgia, Brad Raffensperger. Yes. I mean, he, he, you know, he could have easily tried to torpedo what happened in Georgia, but he did not. He stuck to his guns. And you have Trump actually making illegal threats against him and trying to get him to overturn the election. And that's also where he's being uh, investigated and something could happen to him there. Um, but, and, you know, one of the things that Georgia Republicans have done, in addition to sort of changes on, you know, absentee voting and all that, they've created a situation where the secretary of state is no longer in charge of this committee that determines, you know, the outcome of, or, you know, makes decisions about uh, whether something was done properly or improperly or what, and what the vote uh, is. And they can replace that with a member, a Republican member of the state legislature. And so we know how that's going to turn out most likely if, um, if there's a really close election in Georgia and that's a direct um, attack on the democratic process. And to the extent that this, happens in however many states it might happen in that's a really dangerous thing um but um the other thing too uh is that the courts will be interested in or uh, others who are evaluating trump's behavior is what happened in arizona where they claimed oh this was a you know this was manipulated this is um this was cheated we got uh you know we we won the state and then they get this this crew of the cyber ninjas or whatever they're called. And he, he actually lost votes during this process. And so um, there's nowhere that he's made a claim that there's some problem where that, where anything has been found to be problematic. And the courts um, have been very clear about this in almost every situation. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. Um, uh, next year is going to be a boon year for attorneys who are involved in any kind of election legislation or election uh, results. They're going to be in court all over the country because of this. For instance, if in Georgia uh, they uh, throw out a democratic uh, process that was successful. And what I would like to discuss further uh, in our next segment is about elections and what might happen and what Republicans are doing to shoot themselves in the foot. Uh, we've got a couple of other items I would like to get into. Um, first of all, do you think that it is possible that a voting rights bill will be passed? And what do you think will happen if it doesn't get passed? Oh, Bob, uh, you put me on the spot. Um, well, I think if there's a way to manipulate the filibuster or to, to carve out an exception to the filibuster, I think there will be voting rights reforms passed. I think Manchin does want um, re voter registration uh, guarantee. He does want some um, some other reforms, um, same day voting, automatic reg registration, and this kind of stuff. And so I think there's an interest in it. Does he want all the stuff that is in this um, HR four proposal? No. Uh, so if, if they can do that and he's willing to play ball, um, then I think some things will happen and that will be extremely beneficial. Um, uh, you know, are Republicans shooting themselves in the foot? Well, well, you know, that remains to be seen. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I think that voting rights legislation could pass. I think they're going to, you know, they're going to move that because of the 
the sort of the collapse of the Build Back Better thing, they're going to move that to to really start working on that in January. And um, I, I think the I think it's a, it's a maybe better than 50-50 that they'll get something done. And it's really critical to the Democrats to be able to do this because otherwise the manipulation that could happen at the state level will be phenomenal. So I think we're getting close to uh, our hour. And uh, I just want to explain what we're going to do. Uh, Phil and I, and that's Phil Worf from uh, Mendocino College, professor of political science, who has been my guest today and is for uh, the last year or more been my fifth Friday guest. The normal Fridays that this show airs is the first and third. Uh, So what happens to the fifth? Because there's another show that's on the second and fourth. Well, uh, we have come up with this idea to talk about more current things that are going on. And I think we still have a little bit of, uh, of stuff to work with. So we're going to end our regular session very soon. And then uh, Phil and I will take a, a short break. And then uh, we will start the bonus part of our discussion. And we're going to talk about uh, what the Republicans are doing to nominate people based upon who Trump is supporting and what might happen uh, if that is done. So uh, now uh, I'm going to say that the the next show will be The Wondrous World of Music with Gordon Black. Uh, But for now, uh, this is Bob Boshansky, Politics, A Love Story, Phil Worf from Mendocino College has been my guest. Uh, We'll be back. Uh, for the bonus that you could possibly get on uh, the website. If you click on to uh, the shows, the various programs, and scroll down to Politics, a Love Story, you'll come across this. In addition, just so you all know, all of my shows over the last year have been put on a podcast uh, wherever you get your podcasts, and they're for free. So there's a year's worth of shows. That's about 28 or or 30 shows on uh, Apple Podcasts that you could get on by by looking up either my name, Bob Boshansky, or the name of the show, Politics, A Love Story. We're going to sign off for now, and we'll be back soon. Hi, I'm Bob Boshansky, and we are continuing our conversation, and the we is... Uh, Phil Worf, political science professor at Mendocino College, and we just did an hour-long discussion about current events and maybe some uh, ideas as to what might happen in the near future. Uh, but we we ran out of time, and we left a couple of big items uh, on the table. One of them is the Texas abortion bill, uh, and. John Roberts, uh, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, in his dissent, because he wrote the dissent, uh, and along with the three uh, Democratic, if you want to call them that, but the three more liberal justices against uh, the five more conservative justices. And what he said was that by allowing H.R. 8 to continue, that was, in essence, a nullification of the Supreme Court, and it was going to erode their ability uh, to be a significant player going into the future. And then, sure enough, our governor, 
Gavin Newsom uh, has proposed a similar bill, but to take away assault weapons using uh, uh, people who have nothing to do with whether the state or the object to be able to sue those people who were uh, selling assault weapons here in California. So, Phil, you saw this on our list. Do you have some information for us? Well, um, not really any new information, I don't think. But um, yeah, this is a this is a really um, big change, or a, a, a very sort of unique approach um, that we may see a lot more of. And the idea here is that instead of um, allowing people to potentially sue the state if they're unhappy with the law or think it's unconstitutional or, or what have you, um, or discriminatory, um, you're, they're allowing other individuals to sue um, an abortion provider or even down to someone who gives them a ride to the clinic. And so this means the state doesn't have to go and defend these laws. It means that um, you know it, it can just stay out of it completely. And this would allow this you know, mass swarm of lawsuits to to hit uh, all these people at once. And so part of it is to keep Texas from having to defend them. And then the other part is just to be able to uh, create a situation where they're just not able to operate in the state anymore. Um, So I think uh, Newsom's idea, I mean, I think it might be grandstanding as much as anything, but um, he is asking the state legislature to look into this question. If they can go after abortion rights like this, why can't California go after ghost guns and um, illegal weapons and this kind of thing and allow, instead of the state going after them, have their neighbors, um, you know, drop a dime on them uh, or someone else, um, you know, challenge uh, these um, illegal weapons or production of these ghost guns and that stuff. Uh, which which would sort of um, which would flip things uh, on its head, and I, so is is um, is Newsom sort of grandstanding about this, or is this a, a new uh, trend we're going to see? Um, I don't I don't know, but I think the trend is very dangerous. I mean, uh, this sort of tries to go around the institutions of government, and the fact that the Supreme Court didn't immediately throw this, you know, just sort of kick this thing uh, away, it's just it's kind of mind boggling to me, and this tells me that. The six vote uh, Republican majority uh, with, you know, uh, with um, you know, the chief justice sort of uh, being more in the middle, although he was considered quite conservative when he, when he was appointed. This tells you how pretty radically conservative reactionary that they that they are. So Alito and Thompson uh, and Thomas have been there a long time. Uh, but now they have a lot of um, help on the in the court, and we we can see we can see Roe v. Wade, um, you know, be knocked out, and we can see um, the Casey versus Planned Parenthood these big abortion rights cases, you know, they could be kicked out. Well, um, uh, lots of things could happen, to, and some people have written some pundits to say that that might not be the worst thing that that might marshal uh, people to throw. Uh, those Republicans who are voting for that, the hell out. But that all remains to be seen. This goes back, and you being a political scientist, uh, know the history of the country and the things that were going on. It was in 1803, in the Marbury versus Madison decision, where the Chief Justice said, it is we, the Supreme Court that determines the constitutionality of any law. That was not written in the Constitution. He just decided that he's going to take that upon himself and the Supreme Court to determine what's a law and what's not. That's not been tested since 1803. 
And there is in the constitution a clause that says that Congress could determine what topics they could take away from the Supreme Court. That's never been used, but it is written in there. So this could open up a hornet's nest uh, going forward. Because if, if uh, Texas is, is, uh, is a winner in this, and then how are they gonna deny Gavin Newsom this law if it's based upon the same thing? And then what about other states popping up with other things, as you mentioned before, uh, this could be uh, a lawyer's feast. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, this is a, this is a big deal. It's um, and I think when, as soon as Texas did this, I'm thinking, Oh, well, there's a lot of things that other States can do on this issue. And I think California will be pretty aggressive depending on what the courts decide about this. And this is a, uh, this is a radical departure. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things, um, you know, there is, uh, Congress does have the ability to uh, create a court system however it likes in many ways, right? I mean, if Biden was able to get uh, Congress to do it, they could increase the size of the Supreme Court to 13 and have more votes on the court, right? And uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, tried to do that. Didn't work, but he got his message across to the court and they changed their mind. Um, yep. now, is that going to happen here? No, definitely not. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of the role of the court, one of the things that um, Brett Kavanaugh, the newest justice, said is that um, why don't why don't the courts why don't we just sort of you know let the states do whatever they want to and let's just stay out of it right maybe that's the best thing to do and this is uh, this is this is um, very surprising let's say because you know it's the court's job to determine what the constitution means and the constitution has been interpreted to protect abortion rights since 1973 and if this court goes after that. Um, that's going to be um, if it decides that that's not the role that the that the federal court should play here. Well, that's a very big difference in the way we understand this debate. And I think it's it is the court's responsibility to determine what the Constitution means. And so to just say, well, let's just stay out of it. I mean, this is not um, the way that the system works. Um, you know, judicial review. Yeah, that came in um, a little later. And there's some power that, that Congress has over the courts. But um, this idea that the court should just, you know, let the states decide what they want to do about abortion rights um, is is very wrongheaded because um, those constitutional liberties have been determined. Um, one more thing I wanted to say about the, the Texas case and this uh, and the Supreme Court was um, Amy Coney Barrett has got this idea that somehow if um, because uh, women could put their child up for adoption, uh, leave it at the at the fire station, whatever, at the hospital, um, that this is a, a perfectly good alternative to abortion rights. And this is, uh, frankly, um, this is crazy, right? Um, there's, there's um, you know, this is, for one thing, it's completely irrelevant to the Texas case, right? It has nothing to do with the Texas case. And this is her pet project and pet idea. And, um, you know, just it isn't and isn't an adequate alternative to people's fundamental uh, right to access family planning. So um, there's these these two ideas on the court that are a threat um, to uh, Roe is um, they're, they're really very strange judicial ways to think uh, from a from a Supreme Court justice. And it's it's it gives me a concern about what's going to happen down the line. Here's another aspect to this. We haven't. Uh, ever touch religion uh, because there are a number of cases coming up about uh, public monies going to support religious schools. But even before we get to that, if we get to that at all, is the fact that this court 
is using their religious beliefs to uh, inform them of their decisions. Now, uh, the First Amendment allows the practice of any religion without restraint, but it also says that the government can't support one religion over another. So uh, this is going against all of that. Uh, most of the uh, members of the Supreme Court are Catholic. Not that that's uh, a, a big reason for doing this, but certainly uh, their religious beliefs are trying to uh, impose those on the rest of us. And that's against the First Amendment, but they're disregarding it. Well, I mean, uh, yes, I mean, uh, that's against the First Amendment to think about the law in the context of your religious beliefs more so than the context of the Constitution. Absolutely. Uh, But, you know, uh, and and I think you can see that it's informing the way that they are making decisions by the fact that they're referencing these other concepts uh, that are not in the Constitution and uh, that's a that's a danger. Now, um, that's not to say that this has not happened in the past. No question, the courts are influenced by this sort of thing. Um, but I think we are going to see cases like this. And you mentioned this idea of the uh, of funding private schools. We are seeing challenges to this, uh, or you know, the idea that you know this funding should, if the the state's funding public institutions, then it should also be required to fund these um, you know religious um, based private. And so if you think about this, the the way this, um, if if they um, vote in favor of that, the court, I mean, you're going to find a situation where you can have, um, you know, the public paying for um, private education and private religious based education out of public funding. And it would be perfectly, it would be required and legitimate. And that's, um, that goes fundamentally against um, the protections the Supreme Court laid down since the 1960s. Uh, which tells you how radical this court could be. And this is one of the key things, you know, about uh, the presidency, as you know, um, is that, you know, the the ability to control appointments to the courts is huge. And the dif- uh, the difference in the Supreme Court as a result of the Trump presidency and what would have happened um, from a Clinton, uh, Hillary Clinton presidency, I mean, it's changed the context and changed the outcome of important issues for the country for the next 20 years. And, um, you know, people will say that presidential elections don't matter. Well, they're just, they, they're wrong. They matter in a whole lot of ways that we don't think about or don't see on a daily basis. And that's one of them, which is why it's so important to Mitch McConnell that he would literally violate, you know, a historical norm to bottle up a Supreme Court justice because he could. Uh, and this is also going to create a lot of um, negative uh, th- this precedent will create a lot of negative um, outcomes in the future as well. So this this kind of hardball stuff is, you know, it's understandable, but, um, you know, there's no long-term thinking here. But uh, if some of these decisions come down and they are so wrongheaded and certain school districts say, like hell, we're going to pay for private religious education, we're just not going to do it. And they'll tell the Supreme Court, you come here with your army and stop us. That's nullification. But then we move that up the chain of command. And what if uh, Joe Biden says, that's so bad, so wrong, so against what the public wants, we're not going to listen to that uh, uh, judgment that you've just handed down. What happens then? That's a major mess in this country. Talk about constitutional crisis. 
my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would be a constitutional crisis, but, you know, it has happened before, right, with uh, Andrew Jackson and the relocation oh, yeah. of uh, you know, Native Americans. Um, well, the bank, too. <laughs> yeah, well, what's that? He, he, he canceled the bank. Well, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So he did a number of things that would that were, um, um, you know, very controversial, to say the least. Um, but I, I suppose he was um, popular enough where he was able to get away with it. Or let's say the groups that he was discriminating against were unpopular enough for him to get away with it. Um, would that um, would that happen today? I don't know. That would it would be a constitutional crisis. No question about it. Um and, you know, the, there has been one, you know, after the Brown versus Board of Education decision about uh, discriminate or um, um, uh, about schools, dis- segregation of schools, um, we did have the South basically nullifying that for quite some time until the feds were willing to go in and stop it um, during the 1950s. So, you know, um, sometimes you have to be patient when something's really transformational. Uh, but given the conflict we're seeing today and the um, radicalism of people, particularly on the right, um, who knows how that would turn out. It's very, it could be very, it could, it could result in, I think there's a lot of potential for hot conflict in the United States, um, you know, in the, in the near future. Yeah. The fact that there could be a civil war here uh, in the country because there are so many guns in the hands of people, they have multiple guns. So it's not like in the uh, olden days, in the the late 1800s, when many cities in the West stopped allowing people to walk around the streets with a holstered gun visible. They, They checked them when they came into town and then they picked them up on their way out. Today, so many people have guns, so many states are allowing their residents to have guns and to have uh, hidden guns on them without taking a course as to how to be safe with that gun. I mean, that's, that's just mind boggling. When I was a member of the National Rifle Association back in the 60s, one of the first things they did was give courses to people how to be safely handling a weapon. I mean, I don't know if they're even doing that anymore. All they're doing is uh, fronting for the gun manufacturers. That's what the National Rifle Association is doing and uh, electing people to Congress who are going to be in favor of open gun laws. So I don't know how this is all going to work out, but uh, it's not going to be good depending upon what happens. And John Roberts was prescient in his decision when he suggested about court nullification, and he was talking about in a small way, we could see that in a large way. Well, yeah, and you know, there there are a lot of concealed weapons. We do have, um, you know, uh, I'm I'm from Tennessee originally, and uh, I know people who've gotten um, uh, gun licenses in Tennessee, you know, within the last last few years, and you can carry concealed and all that kind of stuff. But you do have to have a there is a training class you're required to take. So I think that's important. Um, but the idea that people are able to walk around um, with, um, you know, guns, and you can even walk around in many states with a gun holstered on your hip, um, you know, it's sort of an effort to intimidate other people and, and this kind of thing. And if you look at a guy like Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, this uh, situation in, in Wisconsin, 
um, you know, he's he, he's got this uh, weapon, this assault weapon um, and he uh, that his mother bought for him. And he decides I'm going to take it to another state and demonstrate um, how tough I am with my weapon. You don't take a weapon, uh, you know, to another state uh, unless you are interested in maybe possibly using it. And uh, I think with so many weapons floating around, there's a desire to use those weapons. Um, and that, that leads to, to violent uh, potential loss of life as we saw. And to the extent that those laws are very uh, permissive and liberal, we'll see uh, more of that. Yeah. And that's a, a problem. And I think there's also the pent up uh, frustration of people who are have been locked down or forced to wear masks or get COVID shots. Although I, I don't understand the logic in the, the shots, because in order to go to school, you have to have a number of vaccines that are given. You have to show your card. And I don't think there are any religious exemptions for that because you're, you're going to endanger uh, all these kids if you come without the shots. So, and, and in the military, here's another thing. The military, 27,000 members of the military have determined that they don't want to get a, a vaccine. And yet, if they're transferred overseas, they have to get a whole series of vaccines before they'll be sent over. So to object to COVID, uh, I, the logic escapes me. I, I'm not quite sure. But what we're trying to do is not just protect ourselves, but pre protect all the people that we come in contact with. Uh, so, boy, there are so many odd things that may be coming up this year. I don't know if we have the strength to uh, to deal with it all. Well, um, we we may have the strength to to deal with it all. Um, I, I, you know, there's a lot of issues that are uh, going to be a big. Uh, challenge um, a lot of um, states. Uh, you know, you have um, sort of clearly liberal in many ways, like California. You have states that are pretty conservative. They're not um, coming together in any way. They're getting much further apart. And uh, how are we going to how are we going to heal this uh, rift? Uh, can it be healed? And these are these are big questions. And as you were talking about earlier, with uh, Trump and his uh, cohorts trying to get these um, trying to knock out. Sort of traditional politicians, um, you know, who are very conservative Republicans, but are more traditional and I would say rational. Okay, um, and so, but he's trying to replace them with these much more radical uh, people, and and the more that that happens, the more uh, difficult it's going to be to actually communicate. Um, but but I, in terms of uh, COVID, yes, it's really about, you know. Um, the courts have said, you know, we're not taking your constitutional liberties away because this is about uh, public safety and it's that critical. And it's, it's about everybody else. So it's not about your individual rights. It's about, you know, us as a society and what your responsibility is to other people in society. And so uh, at some point you have to, it seems like that's, that's the way you have to think about it, but you're right. You can't not get the measles vaccine and, and go to school. And so this is kind of the same thing. I imagine we'll, we, we could see this as a required vaccine down the line too, depending on how it transformed. Um, so it doesn't, it's, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me either. I understand personal liberty and all that. I get it. And I, I'm very um, interested in maintaining my personal liberty in important ways but this is not one of them. This is about uh, your neighbor. Uh, and so if you don't like wearing a mask, 
you know, that's unfortunate. But if you did wear a mask, this thing might be a lot less. Uh, you might be able to not wear a mask right now if you'd worn it before. You know, right. so it's just a rational thing to do. So um, we're going to be coming up on an extra half an hour uh, of bonus material that we have been discussing. And I think um, I'm going to just throw out one hopefully last topic, and that's the big lie. There are still a lot of Republicans in public that are promulgating the big lie that Trump came up with that he, the election was stolen from him. And I think what's happening, it's like his core believers will not go away from their support of him no matter what. But as you pointed out before, the more rational Republicans, it's like concentric circles. The ones closest to that core group will probably not be dislodged. But the further out you go in why you supported Trump or Republicanism uh, is beginning to erode. There are people, least known people, who are uh, relinquishing their support of Republicans. And so I'm wondering whether uh, Trump will, first of all, be nominated for president come 2024, and whether any Republican will be able to get elected as president in 2024, depending upon what happens between now and then. And we talked about a whole bunch of things that might intercede, so <laughs> we, we won't know. But certainly, his support is diminishing, I think. Well, I think, I don't know. I mean, I, I've not seen the numbers, but I've heard he's doing quite well in a, in a re-election uh, matchup with, uh, with Biden right now. Um, you know, I think if uh, uh, the, the further away from Trump's presidency people get, maybe the more that they think they might be willing to tolerate him coming back. And there's a big chunk of the public that wants him to come back, of course. Um, but I think, um, is Trump going to live until 2024? That's a legitimate question, right? I know 2024 is also a legitimate question. Um, so, th so there's that. I think you also have a guy like Ron DeSantis, who thinks that he has a governor of Florida, who thinks he has a shot. Um, and he's doing lots of things that are, um, you know, trying to please those very far right Republicans. And maybe he can shave some of those off of Trump if there are a number of Republicans who believe they're more traditional and think, well, you know, he's, we can support him um, and maybe not Trump. And I think as I think um, underneath, he's very radical too, but uh, I think he might be competitive um, at election time. I think if it breaks down to Kamala Harris, I, she's going to have a difficulty winning. I think Biden, Biden's going to have difficulty winning uh, as well. So even though you would think that Republicans have, would have a challenge, they might be pretty, they may win. Um, and also the change in the, the electoral college, um, the distribution among states gives them an even greater advantage in 2024. So um, things are looking good for the Republicans uh, to me. Uh, but again, you know, it's, uh, it's a long time from now. But I think that it might be uh, an inverse uh, uh, ratio here with the more indictments that there are against Trump, uh, the less support he will have. Uh, I don't know that for certain, we can't ever know, uh, but certainly uh, it's it's a problem going forward. And guys like DeSantis, I mean, he's he was supporting the big lie. I just don't think that the more sane Republicans are going to continue to accept that. And I, I think guys like Mitch McConnell, who 
you yeah. say, oh, they, he was so uh, against uh, Democrats that he tacitly supported Trump, if not overtly. But the big thing is now he's saying, well, let's let the January 6th uh, committee do their work. The public wants to know. He's changing his tune. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that uh, McConnell will do anything to maintain political power. But I also do, and you see it in his, even in his body language, you know, to some degree, he's very uncomfortable about the, the direction the Republican Party is going. He, I think he's concerned about his status in the Senate. Uh, and he, he, he's never been, you know, you always get the impression, you know, was back Trump in terms of his political partisanship, but was really a big fan of Trump. And I think we see that now in the, uh, from Trump's uh, statements as well. But um, so I think McConnell is very, very Republican. He's very right wing. Uh, he's very conservative. Um, he's very interested in maintaining political power. But I also think that um, he, he, he thinks Trump is, I think, deep down, he thinks Trump is, a, is, is dangerous for the country. And, um, you know, he's, uh, you can see it uh, when he, uh, you, know, you can see it, and you can hear it. And more and more people will come to that same conclusion going forward. Uh, there's so much that could happen between now and next November, no less 2024. Uh, we couldn't possibly make predictions and expect them to come true because there are too many unknowns. This is the one thing I will give uh, Rumsfeld credit for. It's not the known unknowns that you have to worry about. It's the unknown unknowns you have to worry about. And we have just way too many unknown unknowns. So we do. That, but that's that's always. Sorry. Yes, yeah, always the case, though, Bob. And I think um, when we we have a chance to talk again, we'll have figured out some of them and we'll, we'll figure out more of them as, as things go along. Well, more things will have happened so that we'll be able to right. see the ending of some things or the beginning of other things or the results of whatever. So I want to thank you, Phil Worf, political science professor at Mendocino College, for being once again my fifth Friday guest. Uh, Phil, as always, it's a great uh, conversation that we have, and I want to thank you for being on. Until next time, this is Bob Boshansky. You have been listening to a bonus edition of Politics, A Love Story. Okay, Phil, thanks again, and uh, see you next time. Okay, sounds good. Thanks, Bob. Talk to you later. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.